0: and engaged in an interesting conversation about the location of the battle of armageddon but we're going to put that aside for right now because we're going to soon get off the bus at tel lachish a significant site in southern israel and for the tour today at lachish i won't be the main tour guide that's because we're going to meet dr yosef garfinkel an archaeologist who has directed excavations at tel lachish dr garfinkel is the Yigael yadin chair in archaeology of israel At the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He also received his bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. from Hebrew U. He has published many books and over 100 articles. These books include In the Footsteps of King David, Revelations from an Ancient Biblical City, which looks at the archaeological evidence for David's kingdom. And another is Dancing at the Dawn of Agriculture, an award-winning book which examines depictions of dancing on archeological artifacts from the ancient Near East and surrounding areas, ultimately questioning the role of dance in Neolithic societies. Dr. Garfunkel is a renowned archeologist and scholar, and I can't imagine anyone better to show us around Lachish. Well, we're just arriving at the site now, so let's hurry out and meet Dr. Garfinkel. There he is, standing in the shade as any wise archeologist does. Dr. Garfinkel, thank you for joining us here on the virtual voyage. My pleasure. Well, the first thing I'd like to ask you about is the word tel that is attached to lachish, tel lachish, as we stand here at the site. We've talked many times here on the virtual voyage about what a tell represents, a process of conquering and rebuilding such that a mound forms at a site. But this mound at lachish looks quite steep. I'd have to assume a lot of different peoples were here at lachish. Can you take us through the history of this place and some of the major peoples that called lachish home?
1: The site of Lachish, the Tale of Lachish is so high that nobody excavated deep enough to see what's happening in the bottom of the site. What we know about are from top down, we have remained from the Persian Hellenistic era. Then we have uh, the Kingdom of Judah. Below this, we have the late bronze Canaanite uh, cities. Below this, we have the middle bronze Canaanite cities. But nobody really excavated much into the middle bronze uh, Canaanite cities, but beaten pieces here and there. Further down, we also uh, know that there is early bronze city and probably Chalcolithic and Neolithic remains. We know this from cemeteries, which were excavated outside the city, and you have remains from the early bronze. And we also have pottery shared from uh, Neolithic, Chalcolithic periods, indicating that these areas are, or this period are represented at the site.
0: So what's the earliest reference in archaeology to Lachish?
1: In archaeology? Well, the first, uh, well, already Lord Byron, as a matter of fact, in 1815, mentions Sennacherib. And uh, all uh, Lord Byron could have known about Sennacherib is the story of Lachish, the Assyrian attack on Lachish under King Sennacherib. So this is already there in more than 200 years ago. And then the first uh, survey ever, ever made in the ancient Near East by uh, two scholars, Smith, uh, Robinson and Smith, and they already tried to identify biblical Lachish, and they found a place called Um Lachish in Arabic, meaning the mother of Lachish, and they suggested that this Um Lachish is biblical Lachish, but it was a mistake, because oh, no. the excavation okay. in Um Lachish didn't find any remains from the 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 Iron Age or, or uh, Canaanite era. And uh, only in 1929, the real uh, location of Lachish has been identified by Albright, which was a great biblical and archeo- biblical archaeologist uh, scholar. He made many contributions to archaeology. And one of them is the identification of biblical Lachish in a place which is known in Arabic as Tel Eduel.
0: And how do we know that this is Biblical Lachish? What was the evidence that Albright found?
1: He didn't found it. It was a proposal only. <clears throat> but uh, later excavations saw that this is a major Canaanite city and a major, the second most important, Iron Age city in the kingdom of Judah. So it must be Lachish. And also letters found in the city. in re, The name Lachish was found in letters in the excavations of Lachish.
0: Interesting. So this okay.
1: identification is... Uh, uh, pretty sure, or even 100% true. Yeah.
0: So I've heard Lachish referred to as the second most important city in the kingdom of Judah, only following Jerusalem. So it seems that Lachish is a pretty important place. But as with some other formerly significant places like Katzor's, is one I think of, uh, Lachish is a name that I doubt most people would recognize. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone putting Lachish on their uh, Israel bucket list, so to speak. Why is that? What has caused this site to fall from such a place of prominence to the point where it's almost unknown?
1: It was very prominent in the second and first millennium BC. This was more than 2,500 years ago. So we can't expect anybody today to know about uh, the important city that uh, is dead now for such a long period. But every biblical scholar, every scholar of Assyriology, every scholar in archaeology of the Levant knows about Lachish because Lachish has connection to Egypt and connection to Mesopotamia and connection to Dijin and to Cyprus. And when Lachish was excavated in the 1930s, a temple was found at the site, which is known as the First Temple. It was found outside the city. In this, in this temple, you have three levels, early, middle, and late. And in this level, you, they found Egyptian material. And the Egyptian material, because we know the pharaohs, it gave chronology. 16th century B.C., 15th century, 14th or 13th centuries B.C. And then in this temple they found material from Dijin and from Cyprus, And it was possible to date Cyprus and Dijin according to the, to the Lachish Temple. So it was really a meeting point between Africa, Asia and Europe from ecological point of view.
0: So when you talk about Tel Lachish being kind of a meeting point for so many places, can you give us the geography of Lachish? Where exactly in Israel are we?
1: We are about two days' walk southwest of Jerusalem. Today, the major city nearby is Kiryat Gat. It's not a very very, uh, famous place, but this is the closest uh, city uh, in the region. But you need to understand that when you think about Israel today, you have Tel Aviv, the major economic center, and you have Jerusalem, the the administration and the religion uh, center. It was the same in antiquity. Jerusalem was the administrative and the religion center. And Lachish is like Tel Aviv. Lachish was the economic center of the Kingdom of Judah.
0: So when did you personally start your excavations at Lachish? What year was that?
1: I started 2013. Excavations were conducted with Professor Michael Hazel from Southern Adventist University in Chattanooga, Tennessee.
0: Oh, amazing. Okay. Okay. So U.S.-based. It's a common
1: project, Israeli-American project, yes.
0: So a few things I'd like to ask you about to give us a broader idea of your excavations here. Uh, one is, what questions did you set out to answer at, in your work at Tel Lachish, and what have you found? And then, is there anything you're still hoping to come upon in your future work at Lachish?
1: So the real story starts in another site, which is called Kirbet Kayafa. This is a site where we found for the first time in the archaeology of Israel a fortified city in Judah, from the time of King David. Even in Jerusalem, you have an area which is dubbed city of David, but you cannot prove that even one stone there is from the time of David. So there are many debates about David, if he is a a real historical figure or only a mythological figure. And this debate started nearly 40 years ago. Horrible debate between maximalist and minimalist, historians, archeologists, biblical scholars, and so on and so forth. And the answer finally came from my excavations, that Herbert Kayafa was a biblical city from the time of King David. This was really a revolution. And once we started the excavations there and the thing became clearer, we have a full page on the New York Times. So this was really a big revolution. And uh, we excavated Herbert Kayafa for seven years. And during these years, people were asking me, who making such great PR for you? I said, King David. So in Hirbet Krayafa, we discovered a miniature model of a building. It's a box made from stone, but it's like a structure, a building. And on it, there are features, architectural features, which are similar to the description of Solomon Palace and Solomon Temple. Of course, people also debated if Solomon is a mythological figure or not, and if the temple was built or not built. And suddenly we have in Judah, from the 10th century BC, a building model which is like the biblical description. This was also a revolutionary discovery. But now look, big debate about the 10th century BC. If the biblical tradition has memories, or it's all mythological and just literary compilations. So we have something about David, and we have something about Solomon. So who is next?
0: We have Rehoboam next.
1: Rehoboam. Now, so I want to find something about Rehoboam. This was my. uh, This is the reason I went to Lachish. Why? Because the Bible, the biblical tradition, said that Rehoboam fortified 15 cities in Judah, and one of them is Lachish. So the question was, if we excavate Lachish, will we find a city from the time of Rehoboam? This was a research question. I didn't know if the answer will be yes or not. And we came to Lachish, we excavated five years, and indeed we found a new city wall, which was not known before. And radiocarbon dating of this city is the late, later part of the 10th century BC, and the first part of the 9th century BC. So this is really a city that fit the biblical tradition about Rehoboam. So this is what I did, early 10th century David, middle 10th century Solomon, later part of the 10th century Rehoboam. So I completed the picture. So basically I found what I was looking for. But here is the problem, the point. You ask about the problem and what I would like to, to know more. Okay. Herbert Kayafa was suddenly destroyed and it was very, very rich with object. We found ten thousands of pottery vessels, animal bones, metal object, cultic object, two inscriptions. The site was extremely rich because it was suddenly destroyed. But when we go to Elachish, level five was built, and then it was not destroyed. They built level four on top. People were asked probably to evacuate the place, or maybe it was done quarter by quarter. So what happened? People took all their belongings, and level four was built on top of level five. Level five is the level of Rehobon. Now, when we're excavating this city, it's very poor in find. We have very few pottery shells. We have very few animal bones. We know nothing about the cult. We know nothing about uh, administration. We don't know nothing about writing it and so on and so forth. So now I'm continuing the excavation of level five in order to have a larger horizontal exposure. And I don't need any more. It's not a question if Rehoboam built Lachish or not. I know that he built it, but you know, it's like an empty drawer. I have an empty drawer, Rehoboam is written on it, but when you open it, it's empty. (laughs) I want to know how people lived in the time of Rehoboam. This is what I'm doing as an archaeologist. I'm trying to understand how ancient communities organized themselves. So I need pottery. I need animal bones. I need metal object, I need stone objects. I need something about the cult, something about administration, maybe imported objects from Egypt, Mesopotamia, Cyprus, you know, to know more about international connections and so on. That's why I keep on excavating, not for to have more and more data about this period in the history of the Kingdom of Judah.
0: Right, so you're looking for datable materials, essentially.
1: No, datable I have. We have about 20 radiocarbon dating. The dating is clear. You should know that uh, every radiocarbon date costs about uh, $350. And we just uh, finished a very large uh, dating project with about 80 samples. So this cost. It could be more than $20,000. So I'm not going to send more samples for dating. We have enough dating. What we need now is to know what is behind the dating, how people lived. This is now the question.
0: Well, it's so interesting, man. We've gone to uh, the Tel Dan here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We've gone to Tel Dan and seen that Tel Dan steal where there was that, that evidence for the kingdom of David. And then you're really coming and completing the picture of King David to Solomon to Rehoboam, and it's just fantastic the work that you're able to do. So, Lachish is obviously important with regard to Rehoboam, but what about earlier in the biblical record? When does Lachish first appear in the Bible?
1: In the Bible, Lachish mentioned in the time of Joshua as one of the Canaanite cities that has been conquered by the people of Israel. But Lachish is mentioned in Canaanite documents. There are letters, letters sent from Lachish, In the late Bronze period, which is uh, about a period of about 400 years from the 16th century or later part, 15th century BC till the 12th century BC, the Egyptians controlled the Levant. They controlled Israel, Lebanon and part of of Syria. And the local Canaanite kings sent letters to the Pharaoh asking all kinds of political or economical uh, requests. And we have uh, four or five letters from the king of Lachish sent to Egypt. Like we have some letter from the king of Jerusalem sent to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Altogether, about 350 letters, Canaanite letters were found in Egypt. And this is amazing. So Lachish is mentioned already in the 14th century BC and even in some Egyptian documents a bit earlier. So in
0: 2016, you found something quite small at Lachish but it's gotten so much attention, and I just have to ask you about it. It was an imported ivory comb with fossilized remains of lice on it. And when the inscription was translated from the Canaanite script, it was found to be a complete sentence. May this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. So tell us about this find and what it says also about the development of the alphabet.
1: You know, the alphabet is um, probably the most important intellectual achievement of humankind. Because before the alphabet, you have the Egyptian hieroglyphs and you have in Mesopotamia the cuneiform writing system. But these were very, very uh, uh, complicated methods. And only scribes who learned how to read and write for years were able to uh, communicate with these uh, writing systems. So 99.9% of the population didn't know how to read and write in the ancient Near East. But about 1,800 BC, or so, the Canaanite under Egyptian influence invented the alphabet. Instead of hundreds and hundreds of different signs, they reduced everything to first to 32 and later into 22 signs. And when you have 22 signs, it's easy to, to learn how to read and write. So, this is really the most important contribution of the Canaanite to human civilization the alphabet. So, now for the first 800 years of the alphabet, From the 18th to the 10th century BC, till uh, this inscription, we never have a complete sentence. There were about 70 or 80 inscriptions, but all of them are fragmentary. They're all broken. Two words here, one word there, three letters, and so on. Never a complete sentence. And on this ivory, we have a complete sentence. So this is the earliest sentence ever found in Aleph Bet. It's not even Hebrew. It's Canaanite. It's written in Canaanite. It it was really unbelievable, I mean, I was interviewed for half an hour by a reporter of the New York Times, and then we were uh, sixth hour on the top of the New York Times website (laughs) for six hours. So it's amazing. But this is, by the way, the third time that I have full page on the New York Times. The first time was about my research on dancing, prehistoric dancing. The second time was about Chibet Kayafa in the city from the time of David, and the ivory comb was the third time.
0: Let's walk over to the base of the tell and look at this Assyrian siege ramp from the Assyrian invasion led by King Sennacherib. This is a huge part of Lachish's story. Can you tell us about this invasion? And I'd also love to hear your thoughts on this incredible ramp the Assyrians built just to get into Lachish. If I remember correctly, they had to use millions of stones to construct it, and now it is here right in front of us.
1: Okay, the, the Assyrian Empire was the mighty power. They started already in the 9th century BC, and then to, uh, in the, toward the end of the 8th century BC, they arrived to Israel. They, first, they conquered the kingdom of Israel, destroyed it around uh, 832 BC, Samaria fell, and then the uh, 701 BC, they uh, have another voyage and they destroyed part of Judah and also uh, Lachish. And a few years later, they also conquered Egypt. So this was part of the expansion from north to south, Israel, Judah, and later Egypt. Now, uh, Hezekiah, king of, uh, of uh, Judah, revolt against the Assyrians at about 705 BC. And then he took the Assyrians, King Sennacherib, it took him five years to organize a military campaign because he was busy with Iraq in things in Mesopotamia and places which were closer to his camp to Assyria. And then 701, he marched to the Levant. He conquered some Aramaic kingdom and the Philistine, and the Phoenician Philistine, and here he came to Lachish. And he destroyed Lachish. This was such a, a traumatic event. It's mentioned in three different biblical books. It's mentioned in the Book of Kings, in the poor, in the book of Isaiah, and also in Chronicle. And you don't have many events in the Bible which are mentioned in three different books. So you can see uh, how traumatic the event was because he destroyed la- large part of Judah. Probably half of the population died in the war, died in, uh, you know, from starvation. And uh, many people were exiled to Assyria. And then 701 with the kingdom of Judah was in its peak. And later, it's never managed to come back to what was before the Assyrian destruction. So it was very, very traumatic uh, event. So we know about it from the Bible. Then in 1847, this is more than 160 or 170 years ago, Austin Layard, a British explorer, excavated at Nineveh and he found the palace of Sennacherib and he found a beautiful relief describing how the Assyrian army conquering Lachish. And how do we know that this is Lachish? Because of the inscription. It's saying that this is uh, the city of Lachish. So you have a document telling you that the beautiful, beautiful uh, relief describing how the Assyrian conquered Lachish. This relief is now in the British Museum. And I work. Uh, I have a sabbatical here a few years ago, and I work on the archive at the British Museum about Lachish. And then, when you have a noon break, you know, a lunch break, I came out from the archive room and I went to see the Lachish. Relief, And I said, I'm such a lucky archaeologist. I can see a picture of the site from 2,700 years ago. I don't think many archaeologists in the world can uh, have, you know, depiction of the site thousands of years ago. So this is about the British Museum. So we know something about uh, event from the Bible. We know about from the relief. But Sennacherib also wrote a historical text about it. So we also have historical texts of Sennacherib, and then we have the site of Lachish. So we have a meeting point between text, iconography and archeology. span And you know, usually people saying that, uh, who wrote history, the winners. But in this case, the winner were the Assyrian and they wrote their history, but you also have the Bible. This is the history of the defeated people of the Jews. So you have both, the winners and the losers. <laughs> So it's unbelievable, you don't have many examples like this in human history, that you have four different sources about a historical event. Okay, in the site of Lachish, and this was already found by David Ossishkin, Professor Ossishkin who excavated Lachish before me, he excavated the seed drum. Igelia didn't help him to identify it and he excavated and indeed what is a siege ramp? It's a huge ramp leading up to the city wall. So the Assyrian will be able to push up a battering in green, a, a siege machine that will break the wall. And once you had the city wall was broken, the Assyrian army could fled the city. So this was uh, the, the, the siege ramp. And, but nobody uh, dealt so much about how it was built. Okay, you have the siege ramp, you have the description, you have the uh, Assyrian doc, uh, uh, iconography, So everything seems to be clear. But we ask another question. We ask how it was built. Okay, with uh, with the help of scholar from uh, Oakland University near Detroit, we did 3D model of the area, we calculated the volume, we calculated how long the seed ramp should be, and it turned out that altogether they need about three million stones to build it. Three million stones. Where these stones came from? Now, why it's so important? Because this is the oldest siege ramp ever found from the ancient Near East. Nowhere we have an earlier siege ramp than the Assyrian siege ramp of Lachish. So it's a landmark in military history. So we calculated that three million stones are needed. And the big question, where the stone came from? People sometimes said, okay, they collected them in the fields around. But you know what happened after three days? You need to go kilometers and kilometers to bring a stone. So the best solution is to have a quarry. And indeed, when you look at early photograph of Lachish area from 1932, 1933, you see in this, region, in this area of the sea ramp, you see a quarry. This is leftover of the Syrian quarry. Then people said that porter took the stone and dumped them on the sea ramp. But the porter need to go back and forth, back and forth. It will be much easier when you have a row of people. People were standing, and the stone moved from hand to hand and were dropped down the sea drum. So we really reconstructed the whole uh, uh, process from the beginning to its end, how the sea drum was built. And what is the amazing amazing, uh, conclusion? If you have four row of people, and they're working 24 hours a day, they can uh, contribute 160,000 stones a day. And the three million stone can be uh, produced in 20 days. So the Assyrian Empire, were all, was, if, they, if they work, you know, 100% efficiency, it will take them three weeks. And if not, it took them four weeks.
0: Well, that is an incredible story. And that just is, is, is amazing as we're standing here and actually seeing that seed ramp and thinking about those people who worked for weeks to get all those stones right here. Just incredible. Thank you.
1: By the way, I want to add one thing. Recently, the Israel Park Authority built a visitor center at the bottom of Tel Lachish, near the Assyrian Sidra. And inside the visitor center, they have copies, accurate copies from the relief of the British Museum. So visitors to Lachish, when the vi- it's not open yet, but when the visitor center will be open, you can see the relief with the battle and cream and everything, and then you go out and you see it alive at the side. This is an amazing place to visit.
0: Let's head up to the top of the tell here at Tel Lachish. It's a bit of a hike, but if I remember correctly, there's a palace here at the top. Is that correct? Can you show us that palace?
1: The palace of of the king of Judah. This is amazing uh, construction. We have only the podium, only the base, which is about four meters above ground level. And it's still there. It was 3,000 square meters. On top of it was the palace itself. But today we don't have the palace. I think that there was a palace that has been destroyed by the Assyrians. Of course, they conquered the city. What was the first thing they did? They destroyed the palace because the palace symbolized the power of the kingdom of Judah. So they destroyed the palace. Then came the people. This was level three, the end of the eighth century BC. Then in the seventh century BC, the city of the kingdom of Judah rebuilt Lachish. So what they did, they removed the ruins of the palace and built a new one. Then came the Babylonian, Nebuchadnezzar at uh, 586 uh, BC. And he again conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the kingdom of Judah. So what the, the Babylonian did, they destroyed the palace again. <laughs> then came the Persian period, the people of level one. They built a new city in Lachish. So what they did, they removed the ruins of the palace of the king of Judah, and built a new palace, a Persian palace. And this palace was excavated by archaeologists in the 1930s. It was standing for two meters. The walls were plastered, monumental pillars, beautiful, beautiful building. But what the archaeologists did after they exposed it and took photographs, they destroyed it because they want to excavate the palaces under. But when they came under, there was only the base. So you see how the palaces of uh, Lachish were destroyed, one by the Babylonian, one by the Assyrian, one by the Babylonian, and one by the archaeologist.
0: <laughs> oh, what a story of the palaces at Lachish. While we're here at the, at the top of the tell, we have quite a good view of the hill country around us, and I now think back to the Lachish letters, specifically Lachish letter number four, and the sender trying to watch for the signal fires of Lachish. Another city's signal fires, the city of Azikah, their signal fires couldn't be seen. So tell us more about these Lachish letters and in what context the sender was writing Lachish letter number four. In
1: 1936, the British expedition worked at Lachish in the 1930s uncovered near the gate of the city, 18 letters. These letters were written in ink on pottery shields. If they were written on papyrus, they were decomposed. And probably hundred thousands of letters were written in the kingdom of Judah and they all decomposed over time. But things that were written on uh, hard material, like pottery, survived. So 18 letters were found in the gate of Lachish. And they have enormous, uh, the information is unbelievable. They're talking about the chief of the army went to Egypt. So you see, Judah was uh, preparing itself to war against Babylon. So they make connection with Egypt to help them. And as I talk about a prophet, we know about biblical prophet. But here in one of the letters, I mention a prophet, but without his name, only the prophet. <laughs> so at the time, everybody knew who was the prophet, but today we have no idea. So and another important letter, this is letter number four, is talking about military activities and about communication. Today, when we were, today we have communication you know with the uh, telephone and uh, other uh, far-reaching uh, implements. but in antiquity if you want to have a me- uh, if you need to deliver some urgent message what people did, they did it by fire signals. You make fire signal at Lachish, and then after 10 kilometers somebody saw, see it, make the same signal and then it move another. 10 kilometers, and then it will reach Jerusalem in one hour and not two days, no, not two walking days. But by fire signals, messages can be sent very, very fast. And here, the amazing thing that uh, the letter said we are looking at this fire signals of Lachish as we cannot see Azekah. So Azekah was an important military uh, uh, seat, not even a city, but a fortress, and uh, not. Uh, not very far, but not very close, about day walk from Lachish. And somebody may be in the middle. It's not It's not clear who sent the letter. If the letter was sent to Lachish, or maybe it was written in Lachish to be sent elsewhere. There are different interpretations of, of the letter. But what is amazing is that in the book of Jeremiah, he's describing the last days of the Kingdom of Judah. And he said that the Babylonian conquered all the fortified cities of Judah beside Azekah and Lachish. And here in this letter, you hear that they cannot see the fire signal of Azekah and only Lachish. So it's really possible, you know, that if you are really looking about the last days of the kingdom of Judah, Azekah and Lachish are there, but then Azekah failed, and then Lachish has another few days to survive. It's very, very heroic. Situation that is uh, expressed in, in this letter.
0: Well, as we come to the end of our time with you here, Dr. Garfinkel at, at Tel Lachish, is there anything else we should know about the city, or anything else you wouldn't want us to leave Lachish without seeing or, or knowing?
1: Basically, I think that we covered the major uh, objects that one can see at Lachish. You can see the sidra, you can see the gate where the Lachish letter letters were found. You can see the palace. And uh, there are three Canaanite temples in Lachish, which added added a lot of information about Canaanite cult. But they are not monumental and they are covered and you cannot really see them. So what we talked about is basically what is possible to see at the site.
0: Well, Dr. Garfinkel, thank you so much for taking the time to show us around Tel Lachish. We're all walking away with more knowledge about this fascinating site. And I, at least, am certainly feeling challenged to go dig deeper into the history of Lachish.
1: But you know that every summer we are excavating with the help of volunteers. So if anybody would like to volunteer and spend three weeks in Israel and excavating at Lachish during uh, the coming summer, is most welcome. Do you have a website for that that I can pass out to the virtual voyagers? People can find my address on the website at Hebrew University and send me an email.
0: Okay, well hopefully we'll get some virtual voyagers over there at Tel Lachish digging with you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel.